Hello, I'm Rachel Vaughan-Jones and this is the Building Liquid podcast, a show about startups in the drinks world, the founders that are building them and the tipples that have inspired them along the way. Today, I'm joined by the very talented Callum Hudson of newly launched Isles Cocktails. Callum has always had a fascination with the hospitality industry and started his career in the world of drinks as a bartender at boutique restaurant with rooms, The Pick. He then moved to a kombucha startup where he spent his time working with Michelin-starred restaurants and five-star hotels, amazing, developing killer non-alcoholic cocktails. And it was there that he truly found his passion for liquid development. Callum is just at the beginning of his startup journey, having launched his premium canned cocktails in August 2020. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks. Thanks for having me. So for those who don't yet know Isles, could you give us a brief overview? So we're a refreshingly original canned cocktail company. So we make cocktails from quality craft ingredients. And I use my background as a, as a bartender to make sure that I have created a liquid that is both balanced and refined. So I'm interested to hear about your journey into drinks. Am I right in thinking that you started out in hospitality tech, something to do with tech? Yeah, so I started out selling tech into the hospitality industry. So I worked with lots of big hotels, lots of catering and events venues. And yeah, I helped sort of guide and build that product early on as well from from feedback from customers into into the technology team. So that was where I where I started out when I left uni. And then you made the move for six months to Lisbon. Yeah, so Lisbon Lisbon was was done on a complete whim, really. I wanted to go I wanted to start a, a white port brand. And most people think didn't even know there was white port for starters. Most people would think port as being the drink that, that people pass around in the evening after a, a shooting some pheasants or something like that. Um, but white port is is really, really popular in, in Portugal. Um, I tried it here in the UK and I thought that there was an opportunity really for a branded white port business. And so I went to I went to Lisbon, I went to Portugal and I ended up staying for six months, finding out lots about the industry, obviously drinking lots of white ports. So typically it's served with tonic with a sprig of fresh mint. And it's amazing and it, uh, on a hot summer's day. So when it's really, really hot and dry in Lisbon, it's a very, very uh, refreshing drink. Yeah, I agree. I think everyone definitely in the UK sees port, particularly at this time of year, as something you maybe crack out. Maybe granny cracks it out at the end of her Christmas dinner and you pass it around and it's it's how you end the night. But I had I did have a port and tonic at a supper club and was really blown away by that as a as a serve. And I think we should try and make it happen. What was behind you leaving Lisbon? Um, I think I kind of got to the point where I either start a business or come home. Um, I was starting to run out of money, to be honest, <laughs> and thought I should probably... Uh, I probably wasn't ready to start a business and that I should come home and get a real job. And how much port did you drink whilst you were there? A lot of port because um, it's so much cheaper than here is, than it is here in the UK. So they drink it uh, over there with tonic and garnished with fresh mint and uh, a slice of lemon. So it's it's very much like a hot summer's day drink rather than being the, you know, after a shooting weekend round a table uh, passing it round. So you came back from Lisbon um, and you moved from being behind the scenes of hospitality in the world of tech to front and centre as a bartender. What was it that drove that decision to really learn all about bartending? It wasn't like a instantaneous, I'm going to do this sort of decision. Um, I actually had a job offer to go back and work in, in tech and I would have been on at least double the money 
Um, I would have had way better hours, but there was always that sort of itch to scratch, really. I was just sort of fascinated by food and drink um, and I wanted to learn more. So that was really the, the deciding factor. Um, I turned down good money to, to go and work on uh, not so good money, um, but do it for the, for the love of it rather than doing it for like financial gain. So I just wanted to understand more really about, about the industry, about, about food and drink. And I guess the pig is an incredible, incredible place to learn that. Um, they put so much emphasis on ingredients. I remember requesting, I think it was a jalapeno margarita at one point, and the bartender, I think she was called Mabel, went out to the garden, picked some fresh green chilies to make the drink. And I just thought, what an amazing kind of commitment to locally sourcing ingredients. Yeah, and it's and it's also about making like individual individuals stay really special like that's something that they can do which is really really special that uh that there aren't many restaurants that can do that so yeah it was it was all about sort of understanding and appreciating the ingredients that you you have available to you and if they aren't available to you uh, out of season for example then they wouldn't be used on menus and so so we'd always look at ways of preserving um so there'd be garnishes that would be frozen into ice balls in the summer so we'd, we'd um, freeze flowers into into ice balls uh, and then they'd be used as used as garnishes in the drink or sort of pickling was was quite a, quite a common way to sort of preserve flavors so we'd use all the ends of fruit and make those into shrubs use those in the uh, use those in the drinks um out of season when when those fruits weren't available so yeah it was it was all about sort of valuing really valuing the ingredients that you had and i understand and i learned a lot from from my time there from that and and also about flavors and um and development from your time in the industry so far would you say that that's quite a unique approach that they take there or is that something that's starting to be taken across venues more widely i think when they started out it was really really unique and i think that uh, a lot of people have adopted a similar a similar perspective now but when they did it for when they first did it sort of 10 years ago it was something that no one was really sort of considering and yeah, it's really that hand-picked approach which makes the big difference, and I think that's why they've grown so much and and done so well and, and become so popular. So after your time there, um, you moved over to Real Kombucha and spent a lot of time taking the skills that you'd learnt um, and working with some of the best venues in the entire country, developing their drinks menus. That must have been amazing, working with kind of the best places up and down the country. Yeah, I to be honest, I was a little bit starstruck when I got there. Um, there are a lot of venues that we worked with that were before I arrived that were already working with that were just unbelievable places that I never thought that I would be helping them with their drinks list and advising and that I could add something to that relationship in that scenario. So there, there were places like Le Gavroche, the best of the best. And yeah, um, I'm, I'm sat there talking to the head sommelier about non-alcoholic pairings and, and what I think he should do. and the flavors that are coming through and uh, and him sort of nodding and agreeing and, and appreciating the product and, and ultimately stocking um so yeah it was it was pretty amazing working with those top top venues but also on on the bigger scale that the company worked with so yeah it was a it was a pretty amazing experience and do you think that your appreciation of ingredients and the skills that you'd learned really stood you in good stead to make the transition over to focusing on alcohol-free cocktails yeah 100 percent. i think um the pig when I was at the PIG, I, I did my WFCT when I was there and I spent some of the time not only not only in the bar, but also as a sommelier as well. I was a bit of a rookie, but um, 
pick it up quick when you are on the floor or you're shadowing people. So yeah, those those experiences and and that information, I kind of took that over really to my to my time at Real, and it it really sort of fashioned where I kind of sat really within the business. So I ended up being more of that premium account management role rather than rather than looking at the scale. And what's your standout moment from that time? What are some of the best drinks that you were able to create one of the standout moments was when we when i started working with uh dinner by heston um and the team there they were just amazed at what we had created that was a pretty amazing moment to to get a stopped uh stop there so you spent your time learning your craft developing drinks and then you moved to work with some of the best venues around where on that journey did the idea for Isles come from? When I left Real Kombucha um, earlier this year, I actually sat down and I wrote three completely different business plans. One was obviously canned cocktails. There were a couple of others. I fully kind of put everything into them. I did did all the planning that you would um, would expect, and I picked one on on its merits and and my kind of experience. So I. I I'm not sure exactly where it came from, but I remember looking at what was available in the market and thinking that I wouldn't drink any of it. So I, uh, I thought there was the biggest gap and the biggest opportunity and using the trends that had happened what in the wider spirits industry uh, and, and really taking that into into ready to drink so Isles wasn't necessarily a eureka moment as they say it was more that you wanted to go out on your own do your own thing and and took a look at what are all the different things that i could do and then you figured that premium can cocktails was was the right direction for you yeah and, and i think there'll be very few people that would sit there and say i had a eureka moment it's usually about working through working through options playing with things uh looking at different markets if you're setting out to start a business, a really good place to start, and this isn't original from me, this is a podcast that I listen to by the guys at Ugly uh, Drinks, literally just going into the supermarket and looking at uh, looking at pro- product sectors and, and thinking of what could be done better. For me, I did that. That was a couple of, where a couple of the ideas came from. I don't think there are very, very, there are very few sort of eureka moments out there i would agree usually if you dig a little bit deeper it was exactly what you say someone interrogating what was already on the market and figuring out how they could do it much better themselves so you've got your idea you think i've done these different business plans i think that this is the right direction to go in how did you go about developing the liquid obviously i've I've got lots of experience of of creating liquids um in, in various sort of forms so I'd, I'd done quite a lot of sort of pre-batching of cocktails um so i got lots of samples from lots of distilleries and, and ingredients people and um and everything like that and i basically put together a uh put together a worksheet of maybe 50 different flavor combinations which i thought could possibly work they might not but they could possibly work um and then i basically spent days and days and days in my mum's kitchen mixing and tasting and mixing and tasting and mixing and tasting um and i did all the development myself i i didn't really have any input apart from sort of uh getting getting sort of family friends my girlfriend to to try some so and the product that you've made is alcoholic um what percentage abv so i've got 
two different cocktails. Uh, one's 4.4 and one's 4.4. So they're not overly strong because I was going to say if you were doing all this product development in your mum's kitchen, you're getting them to taste test all the time. <laughs> I'm imagining a stage of a few weeks where everyone was just continually drunk. <laughs> no, it wasn't. No, thankfully I've created drinks that are, that are highly sessionable. It's not like we were creating an old fashioned every single time or or something really really strong um, and in terms of the ingredients so your bittersweet is rhubarb yes ras- raspberry and rhubarb but very much we're very much focused less really on the kind of fruit element more on the the spirits uh vermouth and bitters that, that go in there so the bittersweet really says it all so that kind of tangy jaw clenching bitterness that that's really nice that people that people really enjoy and then there's kind of some tangy sweet notes that come through from, from the sort of fruitier fruitier edge and, and the vermouth as well. So we've talked about the bittersweet and the other one is the refresher. Yeah, so very similar in that it's all about being refreshing, um, as, the, as the name says. So the, the fruit flavours are probably a little bit more dominant in this one um, in, in the sense that I used Granny Smith apple and elderflower. Very clean, crisp fresh flavors there's also some some dry vermouth in there which is nice and very refreshing and then we use a an award-winning craft gin and what was behind the decision to go for um a gin base versus a vodka base or a rum base for example starting with a gin base doesn't mean we'll always stick with just gin but simply put popularity it's a very versatile liquid it's very appealing to the area of the market that I wanted to appeal to. So thought it was uh, the, the easiest winner straight off the bat, really. Now for the fun part. Let's face it, this is the only reason I'm doing this podcast. It's an excuse to drink at 4pm on a Wednesday. So RTD cocktails, which means ready to drink. And in the name, that means that they are ready to drink straight from the can. But I'm a little bit bougie, so I'm going to decant into a glass with some ice. So I've got my ice and I've got my can. And I'm tasting the bittersweet, which I think is my preferred. I've tried them both before and I think... I really like the freshness of the refresher, but as you talked about before, that lip-smacking kind of tang um, in the bittersweet uh, is something that really fits my flavour profile. What would you say was the hardest part of the liquid development process? I wouldn't say it's like really the, the, the liquid development, but physically getting something into a can is really difficult at a scale which is, which is like accessible for someone starting out. So... A lot of the minimum order quantities that, that I had to face were like were really difficult and prohibitively expensive to create that much liquid. So there were a number of occasions where I nearly said, I'm not sure I've got enough money to do this. I think I need more money to be able to bring a product to market. So that was probably the, the toughest part in terms of in terms of getting getting a product. Did you always think you would have it in a can or did you ever consider having it in glass bottles, for example? Yeah, I think my proposition would have changed a lot um, if I put something into a glass bottle. My drinks would have been stronger. I would have been closer to original cocktails. Um, I think the difficulty of working with can is that you're in a can um, and that when you are drunk directly from the can, it, it, it changes the experience completely. So if you're drinking something that's really strong from a can, it feels really strong. And the beauty of a lot of cocktails is that they'll take away that feeling like the pain of alcohol, if that makes sense. Yeah, the alcohol burn. Yeah, exactly. So a great martini, for example, is all about controlled dilution. And you want to dilute to the point where it takes away the alcohol burn. You don't want to dilute to the point where you can't taste the uh, can't taste the liquid anymore. 
So I think with with bottled cocktails, when you can really chill down, when you've got a little bit more method potentially in sort of serving, um, you're able to I don't know stick them in the freezer or whatever whatever you want to do you have a little bit more uh, control over process but with canned cocktails you probably don't have that because they're going to be drunk in the park on the beach on a walk as well as at home so uh, you need something that's maybe a little bit more sessionable yeah and i think that's another reason that isles cocktails are so sessionable is that versus a lot of ready to drink cocktails on the market that are overly sweet and sickly and you almost feel like they should come with a free toothbrush as a as a gift with purchase because they coat your teeth with so much syrupy sweetness. Couldn't um, agree more. Yours are very crisp and light and full of flavour, but without being sweet. So I would say they definitely fit into that kind of sophisticated. It's a it's an RTD for grown ups really. It's for people who enjoy quality drinks um, to have in a convenient format. Balance was always something that I wanted to create. I I, I wanted to make sure that the the pillars of creating a cocktail were there even though that it was in a can because I didn't think that was something that existed already in the market so making sure that yes there is sweetness there but it's balanced nicely with acidity if you're going to have bitterness there as well that that's balanced really well and that those components are all in tune rather than sugar dominating the fact that you've got gin in there I guess that's probably something I picked up in my time at the pig in particular in treating ingredients with respect and letting and celebrating them as best you possibly can. Um, so you launched Isles during the summer in the middle of two lockdowns in 2020, the difficult year. Did this have an impact on the way that you launched the brand? Uh, yeah, very much so. So my strategy from the outset was direct to consumer, building building brand equity through the right partners and the right PR exposure, but doubling down my efforts on Instagram and Facebook and, and Twitter and, and paid ads and a major multiple is is not something that is right for my business at the moment. But also the on-trade have got a really tough time and they've been through a lot this year and I salute anyone that works really within a, the on-trade at the moment. And they are they've got tons of worries. So going to the going to the on-trade, trying to work with uh, with pub groups and things like that was was not on my not on my agenda. I very much wanted to double down and go hard at uh, direct cons- consumer. What would you say on your journey so far has been the hardest part? Obviously, you're not that far into your journey, but during that short time, um, what have you found the most difficult part of starting your own business in the world of drinks? I think from a more personal perspective, less business perspective, I'd say actually being a solo founder is quite difficult. Obviously, in the certain setup that we've got, like the the setup that we've got at the moment of being in, in lockdown, Obviously, there's very little external inputs to help guide you in the feedback that you need really when you're, particularly when you're just starting out, um, isn't there. So I think those those challenges around being a solo founder and not having other opinions to, um, even if you're always the one making the decision, not having those opinions coming at you uh, to help guide where the business goes. I think you've just got to back your, your own intuition. And talking about being a solo founder, you also did a lot of the work that often people will outsource yourself and I remember last time we spoke you told me about designing even designing the packaging yourself which you've done a bloody good job of but that must have been also quite nerve-wracking yeah I think it was actually one of the first things I did and it was quite nerve-wracking but 
I wanted to be as close to every aspect of the product as I possibly could. I also was pretty tight with how I spent my money. Um, I spent my money on the things that I had to spend money on. I couldn't can the product myself, so I knew that was somewhere where I would have to spend most of my money. But the branding was hours and hours of teaching myself what I wanted my brand to say, how I wanted it to come across on shelves. It was a really challenging process and something that I've never done before. Like Talking about my background, I've never designed uh, packaging before, but I took cues from, from stuff that I thought looked good and I kind of backed myself with that, really. And were there brands inside or outside of the category that, that inspired the design that we have today? There were lots of concept brands that have won sort of lots of design awards and things like that, that I, that I took a lot of inspiration from. I took little bits from here and little bits from there to create what I've, what I've created, really. And would that be your advice to anyone thinking about starting a drinks brand? Would you advise them to be completely bootstrapped and take that position of only spend a penny on something which you absolutely can't do yourself? Yeah, I'd, I'd say spend it like you earn earned it. Obviously, a lot of companies are, are founded off startup loans and things like that. You've got to remember how long it's how much product you have to sell to make back that £100 that you spend on on someone looking over your labels to make sure that they're compliant that's an essential thing to do but ultimately you have to sell however much product to make back that cost so yeah just just understanding really the value of a pound so yeah where value that you can't add yourself is really important to outsource things where you can add value and you can create something that you're proud of i'd say bootstrap all day late nights on photoshop And then on the other side, what's been the best part so far? What's been your proudest moment? I can take a guess to what your proudest moment might have been. There's probably two moments, really hard to choose between. Tell us both. I'd say, I'd say like the first day I, I opened up sales and the order started rolling in. It was pretty amazing. Like I've wanted to start a business since I was 15 years old. So to actually get to a point where I had product that people were buying that was going to be fulfilled and I'd created everything um, in between and I spent months doing it. That was like unbelievable. A lot of founders probably never say, but it's actually quite an emotional moment. And I saw someone, I saw someone on LinkedIn the other day say that crying when they got a particular client, but you put everything that you've got into creating a product and, and, and when you get those, those ups, those really good moments, obviously it's going to be emotional. And I think you, um, I don't think you really appreciate that when you, when you work for someone else, what, um, someone's brand means to them. So yeah, I'd say that that first day of sales was, was amazing. I think within the first uh, hour of opening up the orders I'd sold a thousand pounds worth of product and um, that's incredible yeah and yeah it was it was pretty amazing and I guess all the more sweet because you started the business bootstrapped and without as you say one of these big investor loans or startup loans and it's it is your blood sweat and tears and you put everything into it so that must make that feeling all the more emotional and sweet um, what was the other one? You mentioned there were two amazing moments. Having physically holding the product in your hand was really cool. <laughs> I know it's a really not not a great word to describe it, but it was just like the most amazing thing. An idea in your head is in a can with a best before date on. I know it sounds stupid, but with a best before date on and it's going to last to that time and you know sure it's safe and you know that it could be sold in a supermarket and all those sort of things. It's kind of the first step. So what is next? You mentioned earlier, maybe, that there might be some other flavours under development. Yeah, there's definitely some other flavours under development. I don't want to stop at two, 
but I think when you start out, you obviously got to you got to focus on the right things. But yeah, there will definitely be some some other spirits. Maybe I won't stick with a 250 mil can. Maybe I'll go smaller. There's lots of other things that I think you could do. I want to just be guided really by what the market tells me and and people drinking the drink, consuming it and enjoying it, hopefully. And what has the feedback been like since you launched? It's been amazing. So positive. Pretty surprised. Like you always you always back yourself to um to create something that's that's delicious, but at the same time there's almost slight disbelief when actually someone really likes it. <laughs> I know that sounds bizarre, but yeah, it's been it's been so so positive. It makes me want to create more flavours and go out there and do lots and lots. I think you've just got to double down on on what's working to start with. And do you think your approach will stay the same even when we are all out of the dreaded pandemic? Um, will your approach kind of direct to consumer focusing on that for now, will it stay the same? Yes, I think there's a long-term trend in, in direct to consumer sales. I think there'll be some really interesting things happen over the next few years in big retail in particular. I think it's a really, that's a really tough space to be as a retailer, but also as a brand. The long-term future of, uh, of a lot of our shopping is, is direct to consumer. It's all about being agile and, and recognising what needs to be done at the right times. Yeah, I have faith that the on-trade eventually will recover because we are British and we do love the pub. <laughs> um, so I think people will return when it's when it's safe to do so. But I do think that consumer shopping habits have changed. And I think that people have become a lot more used to purchasing things online, discovering brands on different platforms than they were potentially used to. And I don't think that will change. I think that will be really positive for lots of the direct-to-consumer drinks brands who've entered into the market and directly into people's homes um, because I think people will, even when they go back to the on-trade, that they will continue to shop that way. So, yeah, we'll yeah. see what happens. And I, and I think also with that it will go to another level. We won't stay at next day delivery being the best option like we'll end up with same day delivery we'll we'll end up with delivery within a couple of hours and actually feeding people's needs products that way rather than uh, a designated trip to the supermarket the pub and and restaurants still as ever like they'll they'll still have a really strong place but i think bigger retail will will have to adapt and change in in the short term but also in the medium and long term summer 2021 i'm sitting in a park it's really gorgeously sunny I run out of what I'm drinking and overhead approaches a drone with four cans of Owl's cocktails within half an hour of me ordering them that's what I would like you to work towards please yeah or or just like a motorized cool box going around like Hyde Park or just park or Clapham Common or something yeah like a chilled vending machine on wheels exactly yeah with like a sort of honesty box style put in your money get your get your cocktails out I think that's the Maybe that's the future. Maybe not. Who knows? I like it. This is my end of podcast question. It's around what your desert island liquor cabinet would be. So imagine you have to select three or four things. You've got an unlimited ice supply, obviously, because that's mandatory. What would be the things on a desert island you couldn't live without? Huge, huge rum fan. So a case or a crate or palette of Diplomatico is my current favourite absolutely amazing that's a favorite of mine there'd definitely be some some new world red wines and then some some probably some alsace riesling um in there as well i'd say very nice catch some fish with your bare hands cook it on a fire you've built and then serve it with a riesling perfect yeah perfect (laughs) sounds amazing (laughs) 
Um, Callum, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the podcast. Um, I cannot wait to see what you do next with Isles, and particularly I'll be keeping an eye out for any new flavours that might be launching on the horizon. Uh, keep in touch, and I hope to chat to you soon. Thanks very much for having me. Please let your drinks curious friends know about the podcast. At the end of season one, we'll be selecting one of our Instagram followers to win a hamper, including every single drink featured on the podcast. So make sure you're following us at Building Liquid Podcast. I will catch you soon.